Hello, I'm Anne-Marie Ingtuff Larson. And I'm James Bray. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. In today's final episode in the series, we're talking about what you can do to shape the fourth industrial revolution for the better. All through this series, we've insisted that individuals do have agency in this phenomenon. It isn't simply an external event for us to sit back and bear witness to. And today, we look at how, in practical terms, you might get a look in. To that end, today we're joined by our very own Nicholas Davis, author of the new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution, that he wrote in collaboration with our founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. Nick is our head of society and innovation at the Forum, and he's also our go-to expert on everything Fourth Industrial Revolution related, and we are super delighted to have him here with us today. Welcome, Nick. To all the many people listening to this podcast, this idea of a fourth industrial revolution probably seems pretty abstract, overwhelming, and maybe even a little scary. How do they become part of shaping it? What can they actually do? I think we're all part of it already, right? So I think the the, the breakthrough for me was realizing that the fourth industrial revolution is happening around us. You know, this idea, you've talked about it in earlier episodes, this idea that digital infrastructure is just becoming uh, digital digital capabilities, digital technologies are becoming part of the, you know, the world we swim in, the air that we breathe, uh, particularly, you know, for those of us lucky enough to live where connectivity exists and, and, and we're able to afford mobile devices. But what gets built on that is is truly transformative, but it's us who's doing it in different ways. And so I guess the the first thing to realize is we all have a, a look in, we all have the ability to shape it. The question is, what do we want to do with it and where does our power lie? And obviously that differs, differs depending where you live and who you are. If you're a business executive, you have power in one area. If you're a policymaker, if you're a consumer citizen. Um, and I guess, so I guess the first First question back or the first reflection for people interested in making a difference in the way that technology affects our lives is to have a look at what kind of power do we have, but more importantly, what kind of future do we want? That still sounds a little bit abstract. If you are an ordinary citizen, you're not an executive at any big company, you don't hold a lot of power, you're not in government, what do you actually do to start you know, answering all these very big questions? It comes down to, you know, again, the the, the goal that you have. Um, it's been a really interesting time recently uh, in the United States uh, about one of the key elements of the digital world we live in, which is net neutrality. Uh, you might remember in 2014, there was a, a famous uh, court appeal where Verizon struck down some of the, the FCC's rules around net neutrality under the Obama administration. And there was an incredible outpouring at that time of consumer support for a free and open internet, and more importantly, for specific rules about how free and open that internet should be. And just in the last couple of months, we've seen under uh, the most recent US administration, a reversal of that and and the vote in December to to overturn many of those rules. But the most important thing there is the ability for everyday people to have a voice. And they're having a voice in ways that we couldn't have imagined a decade ago. They're having a a voice not just writing to Congress people, elected officials, uh, but by changing the way the internet looks. So the front page of Reddit, which is a, a, a site with hundreds of millions of, of, of daily users, um, became inundated 
with uh, appeals not to destroy net neutrality. People's daily experience of the internet completely changed visually and in content because of consumer everyday activism by moderators and by individual posters on a digital board. That is incredible in the sense of how many people around the world now experience political activism not towards something that we would call the fourth industrial revolution, because we really talk about emerging technologies and things that build on digital, but nevertheless, the rules of the the, the digital age. So I guess to make it very practical um, and hopefully not too abstract, it, it means that you have to get political here. You have to think about what you want and then where the power is to influence others to get it. And the fact that you know many people around the world are lucky enough to walk around with a smartphone in their hands makes you quite powerful and, and gives you a much bigger voice than you would have in, in democratic states than previously. I think the big challenge is if you're listening to this from an emerging economy uh, and you feel like you have very little power because the internet only works intermittently, because you, you can't afford the latest devices, because your educational institution or your employer doesn't provide you with an environment that allows you to reliably uh, kind of play that type of role. I think that's where actually we need to do a lot more in terms of talking and, 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 and thinking about other people, uh, both other people within the countries we live in, we're lucky enough to live in, but also people in other countries entirely, because at the moment, the concept of the world world is flat hasn't translated into true empowerment and the ability for people to feel powerful and, and shape their own futures on, on these topics in, in, in most parts of the world. I mean, in terms of, you know, people might be listening to this and thinking, yeah, I'd love to formulate goals for, for the fourth industrial revolution. I'm bought into the concept, but um, the future's hard to predict. It feels like a very vague or a difficult or a far off concept. What could my goals be? You know, what would your advice be? I, I guess I had three pieces of advice, and 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 this is just by virtue of what I've been seeing and hearing, talking to many different uh, corporate leaders, policymakers, but but individuals around the world about their fears and hopes for technology. Uh, and I guess the first one is uh, take every opportunity to invest in yourself in this. Uh, so, you know, for those uh, who, who have access to the internet, uh, today there is an amazing opportunity to educate yourself on a vast array of emerging technologies and to realize that even rocket science today is not rocket science. Uh, the, the ability to absorb knowledge from many different sources, to verify it, to play with tools that make things that were impossible uh, easy or intuitive means that you can start to develop skills which directly make use of, of new technologies. And so if your goal is for you to be more ready, for you to feel more powerful and to you know, build a career or, 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 or communicate better with others on this, uh, you, you can do that. Uh, and uh, the, the issue, of course, is one's own discipline and the, and the ability to not be distracted or, or uh, pulled away from the very you know, real uh, trials uh, and risks that all of us face uh, in, in, in life. So that's the first thing is um, invest in yourself. I think the second thing is uh, to realize we need to invest in others. And this is probably what's been missing in many kind of formulations of where we need to go with technology. We tend to think the market will take care of everything and that if we just go with profit maximizing models of technology development, we'll, we'll all get the the cheapest, uh, you know, most uh, energy efficient, most ef uh, effective solution. Um, but the greatest social injustice of technological revolutions is that most people miss out. There are still you know, over 4 billion people without access to the internet today. Uh, and forget about the internet, still more than 2 billion people without access to water and sanitation. Being able to fill those gaps and think about, well, how can I use technologies to 
um, serve my community? Uh, and how can I actually do that myself by building things is another uh, angle here. If you're interested enough to listen to a podcast on the fourth industrial revolution and you can, that's something that I think is a, um, a worthwhile goal and, and, and accessible to, to everyone listening to this. Um, so that's the, the second thing. I guess the, the third piece is do reflect and make your views known. Um, so talk to companies. If you have a bad experience, tweet, uh, go on to Reddit onto the relevant board and, and, talk, and talk about these things. Companies that are developing, entrepreneurs developing new technologies are super hungry to understand how early adopters and how the general public really understand um, and, and react to these things. And probably the biggest aha moment for me was no one knows what these things look like at scale. No one knows what AI really looks like when everyone has access to these things. Just in the same way we had no idea how transformative mobile phone telecommunications were when it was just a few rich investment bankers and lawyers hanging around with these bricks to their face. It's completely changed, obviously, our social interactions, the way we receive uh, news, the way we make plans to meet our friends. This is all different now today. So I guess the final thing here is uh, as much as possible, uh, have conversations with those around you uh, and those who do have power about, you know, really thinking about the, the values and, and the ethics and the, and the big picture effects of this. Because what we're building today, um, and this is the hypothesis of the fourth industrial revolution work, what we're building today will shape the world for generations to come. And that's a huge responsibility uh, to, to take whatever power we do have and, and actually, you know, change, change what we do tomorrow. There's a huge problem isn't it, here with understanding, isn't it? Because, I mean, some of these technologies that you know we've been talking about throughout this series are hard even for you know subject area experts to get to grips with. And I suppose if we're counselling, if we're counselling listeners, you know, to use their voice, you know, to try to shape outcomes and get involved in the debate, something like artificial intelligence, you know, where the vast majority of people really don't know what they're talking about. I mean, how do you empower? listeners to, I guess, get involved in those debates, you know, if they're not from a relevant background? Look, it's a really good question. And, and I think that's actually the question we try and answer in, in, in the book that, that Anne-Marie mentioned, uh, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution, because we have this kind of twin strategy here. Um, the first one is people do need a kind of minimal, vi minimal viable appreciation of the technologies. They don't need to be experts in it, but you need to know, you know, the difference between machine learning, you know, and artificial intelligence in general to, to start to see, well, what are we talking about in, in artificial intelligence? And to understand at the end of the day that at the moment, really AI is only just smart statistics. It's nothing more than that. It's clever, very narrow algorithms that can do a specific task. And all of them at the moment break the moment you change the, the input conditions uh, sufficiently away from their design parameters, which can be the matter at the moment of, you know, the, the, the sound level of a microphone or the light level in a room, it will, will cease, to, cease to work. Once you understand that, you, you, and then you understand a little bit more about how companies are trying to use them and how they might react to us, there's this kind of this sense where, well, that suddenly opens up enough understanding to be able to say, do I want this in my life? Do I want this? And this is a key question. Uh, do I want this in my kids' lives? It's really interesting. One of the insights from from uh, Anne Marie, my colleague, uh, uh, Kay Firth Butterfield, was the fact that if you talk about uh, young people, kids particularly, children, and elderly people, so dependents, and you think about what their lives will be like surrounded by technology, even if you don't understand exactly how the technology work, 
works, uh, you can start to appreciate some of the really cutting uh, ethical, social questions that we want to be debating before we run headlong into that future. And so I think the second strategy here is not just understanding enough to be able to see what the impacts might be, um, but stepping back and looking at the system and say, what would this look like if, you know, if all kids at school went through through this? What would it look like if our financial system relied more on cryptocurrencies and didn't have, you know, banks, etc.? These are still quite technical questions and we have to think carefully through them, but they're by no means inaccessible because we should, uh, particularly in democratic societies, we should be engaging as many people as, as possible in them. And so the takeaway for me is try and think about the systems, not the technologies themselves. A book like Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution hopefully just gives enough of that flavor of the technology, enough of the detail to be able to then walk away and say, I don't need to understand any more to be able to appreciate how people might get hurt. So the World Economic Forum has been talking about a fourth industrial revolution for the past two years. Can you give me any evidence that the fourth industrial revolution actually is transforming our lives and our societies? Look, I think 2017 was a pretty momentous year, actually, for the fourth industrial revolution. And let me give you five things I think that 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 we've seen, and and, and you and I have talked about this before, Anne Marie. But but like the first one was uh, 2017 was the year when, um, as I mentioned, uh, the, the big tech companies started to take ethics and values and bias and power much more seriously than they had. Partly as a result of the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential election, partly as a result of the uh, concerns around values and business models, uh, backlash against Uber, um, the rising concerns about artificial intelligence, its influence, and concerns around privacy. Um, these things have come, really come to the fore, and uh, tech companies in particular, but also, also other big multinationals are, are more and more worried about their responsibilities in this space. 2017 was also the year where a previously relatively uh, minor sideshow in in you know mathematics and computer science in the form of of the blockchain um, actually started to become a staple of not just late night TV but late night infomercials uh, in the kind of blockchain the Bitcoin explosion that happened you know the cryptocurrency went up more than two thousand percent sometimes you know more over the course of of twenty seventeen incredibly volatile you get people uh, talking about cryptocurrencies and throwing life savings into something that is incredibly esoteric in many different different ways, hugely powerful for the world, something we write about in the book, um, but not perhaps something that, that your grandma should be investing in right now. That kind of bubble, that hype, is, it was really interesting to see. Um, the third thing I'd say is that we really realized in the West, I'm speaking as, you know, as an Australian working in Europe, 2017 was the year we realized that actually the US and Europe uh, have already lost the race to, in AI and that the big five companies we talk about in the United States, the big five tech platforms we often mention in Amazon and Apple and Facebook, eBay, et cetera, have already been eclipsed by, uh, by Tencent and Alibaba and, uh, and the, the Chinese leaders in this space. So that center of gravity in terms of technology, where it's coming out of, who's producing it across almost all sectors and, and how powerful China and, and Asia is, there's, that's a, a huge moment of gosh uh, for many uh, organizations and governments in 2017. We did see a backlash against many of the platforms in 2017 as well. Um, as I mentioned, Uber particularly got hammered um, over the course and had a, had a, a couple of had a, that major leadership change. And then I guess finally, um, again, when we talk about how these things build on the digital revolution, 2017 was also momentous in terms of we started to realize how much our future depends on cybersecurity. And we had uh, some major, major cyber attacks, particularly the WannaCry attack, uh, which affected the NHS in Britain. But we saw how everyday citizens and consumer brands don't just get embarrassed by 
by cybersecurity. They don't just lose people's data and, and then people go, oh, I don't trust you anymore. It actually affects whether or not you can go to hospital. Uh, it affects whether or not that oil tanker delivers much needed supplies and heating oil to, to where it's needed to be. That level of realization of the real world impacts of cybersecurity, that's, that's 2017. And that's just five of the signposts I think we need to be, uh, be, be realizing our important uh, signals of the fourth industrial revolution. But Nick, you talk about 2017 being a historical year in terms of transforming our lives. You know, I think there's a lot of things we did not see happening. The Me Too campaign was a global campaign with the women's marches that happened in January after the inauguration of, of President Donald Trump. That didn't really take any particular change in how the gender gap is. We saw the form report coming out that the gender gap is now 217 years to finally close. Uh, the proof that technology can actually leapfrog development. We didn't see any particular change in terms of technology enabling emerging economies to rise in terms of um, economic and social progress. And the same goes for agile governance we discussed earlier. Did we really see uh, big experiments of agile governance in, in around the world? And then finally, we've been talking about widespread technological unemployment for the past three, four, five years. We didn't really see that happening. On the contrary, we actually saw positive numbers in, in the U.S. So what's your answer to all these things that did not happen, did not take place in 2017? It's, it's always really good to ask that question. What's missing from, from this picture? Uh, and I guess to, to kind of join a couple of things together there, um, we are still missing both the answer and the kind of the, the shift towards equality in these things. So uh, what I think was really interesting about both the, the Me Too movement and um, some rising concerns about how technology is affecting uh, development um, is that people, more and more people are asking the question. It's becoming more mainstream. It's being hotly, hotly debated. There's obviously a little bit of a backlash there as well that's happening. Um, so it's really healthy um, that, that, it's, that, that people are realizing that it's a crisis rather than it being a hidden crisis. Um, but I think it's one of those, uh, those issues where it's because we don't have the answer now, if you were to ask me my personal opinion on this, the reason why we don't know the answer is because these are not anything to do with technological answers. These are, and again, uh, you know, maybe coming back to this point, these are political questions. These are questions about how we want society to be structured. These are questions about what we want the rules to, to look like and, and who benefits in different situations and how we kind of, you know, look after e each other. And ultimately, these are questions about, the questions that you ask are questions about power. And so I guess coming back to what the World Economic Forum is like kind of seeming to do with, with the book, with its dialogues, with podcasts like this, is really to exactly point out what you just mentioned, that we haven't seen these things happening, or at least not to the extent that we would have wanted to. And exactly that's, that's what needs to, needs to happen. Not just discussion, action. And, uh, and so, you know, it's great to be able to then have follow-up conversations or, or, or other reports such as the work we do in our um, education, uh, gender and work, which actually looks at, well, what are the practical ways at, in the workplace uh, that you can uh, increase gender equality? Uh, um, but um, yeah, no, thanks for challenging that because those are the big questions I think all the listeners should be asking themselves. What didn't we see in 2017? Why not? Uh, and, and where where are there opportunities or risks there? You've been talking about values and ethics and about empowering you know ordinary citizens to uh, engage with these conversations. So if we have listeners that are that are on their way to lunch with their colleagues or at, you know on their way home in the car uh, for dinner with the family, can you give us three ethical value dilemmas that they could take up with their colleagues, friends, and family to start discussing uh, the ethical uh, implications of technologies? Yeah. So. 
I think an interesting one relates to something that's been talked about a little bit, which is uh, autonomous vehicles. The ethical question that often gets asked in this sphere is, how do you program a self-driving vehicle such that if it's in an accident and it knows it's going to be in an accident, it's not going to hit something, like how do you make it decide the trade-offs between killing the driver, doing damage to property, doing damage to other people that might be outside the car, knowing that in the case of cars, of course, and vehicles, right, people outside the car are much more uh, at risk than people inside the car, and yet, you know, you may have insurance considerations there, etc. That's an interesting, um, uh, it's an interesting question, and in fact, there's the moral machine work by MIT, MIT, which is really interesting to look at how people answer that question from different cultures around the world. So it might be worth asking that question as a start. But the more nuanced question in that space is. How is that really different from the decisions that a highway designer makes when they put the speed side up on the on a curve of the highway? Because they, a highway designer or a road designer, the way that an intersection is designed is, is also making a whole load of ethical and values decisions about safety, about the trade-offs between people's lives as pedestrians and people's lives in cars. Whether or not you do a separate bike lane, as we have in many parts of the Netherlands and in Denmark and some parts of the world, separating bike lives saves cyclists' lives all the time. Uh, and yet, you know, in my country in Australia, we've only just started to do separate bike, la- bike lanes and they're incredibly controversial for many other reasons. Uh, yet these are also incredible ethical decisions which have nothing to do with self-driving AI technology, but to do with the design of the infrastructure and the built environment around us. So I guess that for me is this question of, of asking ethical questions about, well, what are What's the ethics of the room we're in? What's the ethics of the the objects around us? Um, even what's the wh- how do we feel at the dinner table about using technology at the dinner table? If you pick up the phone, or even if you have your your mobile phone visible on the table during family dinner, experimentally it shows that we've got data to show that that reduces your memory of the conversation, your attention, and your sense of connection with others at the dinner table. In other words, putting your phone onto the table or to even taking it into the, the, the family dinner at the kitchen table or, 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 or wherever you eat in your house is actually an ethical question because you are affecting other people's uh, experience of that meal and you're ex- and affecting your own sense of connection, empathy, um, and recall of that experience. For people who have young kids, this is a common ethical question that many of us sometimes uh, find ourselves answering in, well, I'll just, I'll just answer this call or I'll just quickly check the, the weather and then I'll go back to playing with my kid. So that would be the second one, is thinking about really what's around us and how do we react. And I guess the third big ethical question is, um, who gets to make decisions for me in the technologies I use. And what I mean by this is we often sign up to an application because it's free and you will have heard, people will have heard that, you know, if a product is free, that means you're the product, right? Uh, particularly in the online world, the way that the, 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 the company is making money is either through advertising or selling your data. In either ways, they're both making a, a profit off you directly. Deeper than that, uh, there's the question of how that product is controlling you or at least trying to influence you to spend as much time on the on the platform as possible. Any product that makes money off you uh, through data or through advertising is highly incentivized to be addictive. And so there's a question there about what are the ethics of essentially you choosing to to go into that that system? And most of us would caution our friends and families who have you know, been injured, 
don't spend more than a week taking major painkillers because we know that opiates, the opioid crisis at the moment, these are really highly addictive things and this can really affect your life if you go down that, that path. And yet no one ever says, or very few people say, um, hey, don't, Nick, don't, don't install Facebook on your phone because you might get addicted. Don't, don't use that. Don't put Angry Birds you know, on, your, on your tablet. We're sensitive to screen time in kids, but we're not really sensitive to the ethics of agency, empowerment, addiction in the consumer devices we use. And the reason why this is important for emerging technologies is it's setting the tone for our interaction with technology, which through when we bring in new forms of artificial intelligence, are only become better at anticipating what we want and frankly, better at giving us what we want. And we all know too much of a good thing is often not a good thing. So we need to be really having these conversations now at the dinner table with colleagues to say, well, how do we make sure that we protect ourselves from, from ourselves? Uh, and we have conversations with, with companies around addiction and those externalities. What can you imagine yourself protesting in the next five years? Probably the big thing that I can imagine protesting against is being presented with a world where... I have to accept a certain technology or a technology ecosystem or I cannot get a job or I cannot be part of you know, a certain community or certain citizenry. So in other words, not necessarily being told you have to have a phone with you to work at the World Economic Forum, that's kind of taken for granted, but the idea that um, unless I adopt a particular platform uh, or unless I am um, really tied to a, a set of technologies, um, I am therefore not a good citizen. Uh, and we see certain countries in the world starting to adopt um, quite intrusive forms of measuring who we are uh, and companies doing checks and, and automatic uh, kind of validations of who you are using social media, um, which I think is unfair because people will be forced to act in a certain way online to almost pretend to be. Uh, a good citizen. We know that we have to, you know, in everyday life, we have there are social norms. There are ways that we talk to each other here in the studio. There are ways that we we we, we engage with people on the street when we meet them in terms of what we say. So I'm not saying that we should all have total freedom to be antisocial, but I am saying that to impose a certain set of technologies on us and then say unless you have the ability to be part of that ecosystem, to pay, etc., then you are no longer as respected as a citizen. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a, a danger there, and in in the case that that is absolutely necessary, I would I would expect that governments step in and provide rules of openness and basic infrastructure for everyone who needs it. In many countries, including in development developed countries around the world, we are already at that case with transportation, where I think public transportation and the lack of it for marginalised groups is a second industrial revolution problem that is causing huge uh, issues. And I can see that um, similarly becoming the case uh, and causing inequality in digital technologies and in fourth industrial revolution technologies. Uh, and I can certainly see that being something that I'd, I'd, I'd protest against. I think privacy is the other one. We've kind of lost our our sense of uh, privacy, and uh, in a way, many people are uh, are used to being tracked online. Um, I choose, like many others, to I choose to use a uh, a search engine which doesn't track my behaviour. I use DuckDuckGo. Uh, I use Google occasionally because it is frankly a better search engine. So when I want to find something particularly you know hard to find, I use that. But for ninety nine percent of my my needs. Uh, DuckDuckGo is, is fantastic. If I got told 
I can no longer use a private email server. I can no longer uh, use a VPN, like is happening in certain countries where VPNs are banned. If I can no longer use DuckDuckGo, I have to be tracked by the major platforms, by the government all the time. That would be also something that I would uh, I would be very concerned about. And that is with a full understanding of um, the concerns around national security. I just think that, um, you know, backdoors into crypto in cryptography and uh, and the expectation that all citizens should be monitored at all times is far too close to uh, Orwellian vision and towards uh, um, uh, the misuse by the state that I could ever be comfortable with. And that would be another thing that I would be, uh, uh, I, I am and, and would stand up against. Another thing I think I would be willing to protest would be uh, a truly unconscionable rationing of a breakthrough medical technology. So if tomorrow we found out that there was a gene-focused therapy that could extend your life, everyone's life, by 15 years or 20 years or 30 years, and yet it was priced at, you know, $100 million uh, and completely unregulated in any other way, uh, I would find that pretty hard to bear. And although you can imagine that that kind of breakthrough would create a whole range of problems in society um, regarding pension systems and uh, so forth, um, just the thought of, uh, and I, I guess it goes to Rawlsian justice, this idea of being behind the veil, but the thought of one group of people being so special and so wealthy um, that they would be able to to afford um radical therapies that extended their life or changed their life in such fundamental ways while the rest of us could not, that would be something that, I, that's not a, a world I want to live in. Um, keep in mind that I think it's now, it's every five minutes that someone in China becomes a billionaire. So think about where where in the world some of these technologies are, uh, are going to be used and in countries where there is far more extreme already inequality, social and, and, and economic equality, not so much China on the social sense, but certainly on, on in the economic sense in, in many parts of the world, um, you can see that these technologies would give massive capabilities to just a very small slice of the richest in every country around the world. And so it wouldn't just be a advanced economies versus emerging economies issue. It would be it would really start to split and fracture um, uh, countries, uh, you know, within uh, lots and lots of nations around the world. So, so that would be another thing. Do you think that's already happening? So the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, which was held a few weeks ago, uh, talked about, or the main theme for that, um, for the meeting was uh, creating shared narratives in a fractured world. Do you see technology already now fracturing the world, or are those fractures, um, did they come from something else? Okay, it's a very good question. I think my gut says that most of the fractures that we have in the world are production, uh, are produced, are outcomes that we choose in some way. They come from the systems we set up in terms of politics and, and power. Technology amplifies them. Technology has always given groups advantages over others and has acted to amplify and extend that power, whatever it it is. Look at Almost every example, even pre-industrial revolution, advances in weapons, in transport, the you know the triangular uh, sail, which allowed uh, ships to, to move upwind, uh, to move much faster, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These things have always been used to to dominate um, others, either in industry or in a military uh, sense. So the question becomes: as we develop them, and as we use them, and as they spread. What type of expectations we have? What what kind of society do we want? What kind of rules do we set up? 
um, and how do we prevent injustice from prevailing in those situations. The more powerful the technology, the more we need to think about injustice, the more we need to think about those rules and norms. We are at a stage with the fourth industrial revolution where these powers are not just, these technologies are not just imminent, but they're incredibly powerful. So we should be having even more a discussion on justice and inclusion than we would have otherwise in previous industrial revolutions. Nicholas Davis, thank you for joining us. That was the last episode in our series, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. We hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Larson. Thank you for listening. And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give you clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon.